Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame's football season is back on track. The Irish have significantly cut down the number of players in quarantine and isolation because of COVID-19. After having 39 on Monday of last week, uh, the number was down to 11 this Monday. Uh, So that means Notre Dame is full speed ahead for hosting Florida State on Saturday night. Uh, We had a few podcast topics in mind this week, so we extended an invite to former Notre Dame wide receiver Corey Robinson, who had an infamous run-in with Florida State back in 2014 and is currently working for NBC Sports as a reporter and digital correspondent. Corey, thanks for joining us. Thank you all for having me. Corey, uh, let's start by peeling the Band-Aid off first and uh, maybe some painful reminiscing with that 2014 game. First off, should Will Fuller have been called for pass interference on what would have been your game-winning touchdown catch? Thing right to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. You don't pull any punches. <laughs> no, yeah. The, the thing I always talk about, that, you know, that game was so funny because, you know, from my perspective, we had, I think, three chances to win the game in the last drive, which to me is like, you know, whatever, a call's a call. So I don't really mind that part. It's part of the game, you know. The thing that I'm frustrated is, we had two chances the plays before um, on a go route that I dropped in the, in the corner of the end zone. It went right through my hands. And yeah, I mean, it's a tough catch, but that's why, you know, that's why you play Notre Dame football. You live for those moments. You got to come down with that. So then the next play, uh, CJ had a, a, a CJ had a, um, a seam up the middle. I think it was like right in the middle of the field and we didn't have a chance to complete there, but it, it was, a, it was an opportunity. Then the play that got called back the very last play of the game, um, I had a one-on-one situation in the boundary and I beat my guy on a flag route. And, uh, I think, um, I think it was like a wrong quarterback read or something like that. or like, whatever. The main point is that we had like four back to back to back to back chances to win the game. And that's what the most frustrating thing was. It's like, come on, man. We couldn't capitalize on at least one. Yeah. I, I, in looking back on it, uh, this week, I, I, I didn't necessarily remember how great of a game that was for you. That was probably the best game of your career with, eight catches for 99 yards and two touchdowns without the, the what would have been the game winning touchdown catch. Just it just kind of listening through you talk through all the chances that you may have had. Otherwise, is that, 
has it sort of tainted the memory of that game uh, or is it still sort of a day you cherish, even though maybe it didn't end up uh, on the winning side for you guys? You know, as a competitor, you just want to win. So I don't really care what my stat line was. I could care less. You know, I, I wanted to beat Florida State. <laughs> I mean, really, honestly. So, I mean, if I had like one yard or if I, you know, just had like three nice blocks and we would have beat Florida State, I would have traded that easily. But, um, you know, yeah, it was fun. I, the cool thing about that team was that, you know, we all loved each other. So it was nice being able to like go out there and go to war with those guys, you know, like Fully, Tory, CJ, like, you know, we were all boys, Breezy. So it was, it was really great being able to make plays for them. But yeah, man, I just wanted to win, Tyler. <laughs> I just wanted to win. Understood. Corey, you know, that 2014 Florida State team was pretty good. They ended up making the playoff. And the year before, they had won the national championship. And then you look back at the last few years, and it's really been a rough patch for them. Uh, I, I'm curious, did you, could, we, could any of us have seen this coming? I mean, it seems stunning, the fall from the elite for this program. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see it coming. Because, I mean, I, I always loved those games. Because remember, back in, back in those days, what, like, we circled Florida State and Clemson wasn't even really on the radar, right? That was before the, the rise of Clemson. And then, like, a year or two later, next thing you know, it's, it's all Clemson. It's all Deshaun Watson. It's all those guys. So I think it's funny how the game works like that. But, you know, Florida State's not going anywhere in the long run, right? Just like it's a couple down bad, bad down years, but they'll be back. Corey, I wanted to talk a little bit about Notre Dame's passing game the, this season. The wide receivers haven't been very productive so far this year. Um, they obviously have some guys coming back with Kevin Austin Jr. coming back from injury and Ben Skoranek supposed to be coming back from his hamstring and Braden Lindsey is now 100%. Do you, do you think that that will change now and do you like the, this position group's future at, at wide receiver? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of upside here, you know, and um, I know y'all are obviously this is your job, but you're also big fans of the of the game and of, of Notre Dame football. And you've seen the, the team kind of dynamic shift over the years. Right. And like right here, what we have is, I mean, we have two great tight ends. Right. With uh, Mayer and Trimble. Right. And uh, incredible quarterback play. I'm like the biggest fan of Ian Book. You know, I just think he's awesome and smart and dual threat. I think he can run in space. You just need to give him a little. Uh, you just need to take off the pressure, right, and be able to open up some more things. And once people start keying on the run game, because, you know, Kyron and those guys are playing so well, you're going to have to be able to throw the ball. So for me, you know, I think this receiving group can do that. But the question is, how do you build confidence with, with group guys who haven't really gotten a lot of time on the field with Ian? You know, I think look at the like the catch list. It's like eight seven six you know like that's that's what will fuller had in the one half of, of games when i you know what i'm saying like that's their whole season so you got to build confidence so when when you have eight guys in the box and it's a critical situation and you need a play you need to break things open and keep the defense honest you can throw it to javon mckinley you could throw it to kevin austin you could throw it to Lindsay or wilkins or whoever um so you can actually open up the rest of your game so i think the guys can do that but you just need to build confidence Corey, um, you know, they have a couple things that are working against them, I guess. You know, they didn't have spring practice. Then they're kind of quarantined in different places. And then once they start their season, now they took a nine-day break from even practicing uh, when they and then resumed last Thursday. So you're trying to get timing with your quarterback. 
At the same time, you got a pretty deep rotation when everybody's healthy. Do you think that those numbers are going to maybe you have to have a smaller rotation just to get your timing back with the receivers? Or do you think that it all work itself out and the, and that the timing issue won't be a problem? Yeah. The quarterback receiving, it's all, it's like a, it's like chemistry, right? It's all, um, it's a really delicate dance. And, and the way that I kind of think about it is it really comes down to trust. I mean, if you, if you trust the guy and it's, it's funny cause like you build trust so many different ways and a lot of guys think it's on field chemistry and it is right. You need to be able to go out there and throw and catch and they have to know you in the sense of if I'm running a five step post, like I run that a different way than CJ would run it or breezy would run it or fully runs it. Everyone has like their own kind of um, style, if you will. Um, so it's kind of getting to know the intricacies of that person's style. I'm trying to make it like a, a, like an interesting analogy. Maybe it's like with music, you know, like how many trumpet players are there in the world. But once you hear Louis Armstrong play the trumpet, you know, it's Louis Armstrong. You know what I'm saying? Like he has a voice, a, a certain voice with the trumpet that Miles Davis doesn't have or whoever else doesn't have. Like everyone has their own thing. So that's the most important thing with the quarterback receiver connection is the quarterback has to know the way you play the game. You have to know your sound. And then when they're under pressure, they can just throw it up because they know where you're going to be and they know how you like the ball. I like it, you know, 10 feet up on my outside shoulder and I want it back shoulder. So you can throw it up anywhere and I'm going to go get it if it's in that space. But you got to know that about me, right? And so the way that you kind of know that is if you uh, just hang out. So I think that this, this nine days off is really interesting because it's not just about on-field practice, but it's about Ian getting to know Ben. Like what has Ben like to eat? Like who's like – can they just hang out, you know, like playing video games, just getting to know people because that personality translate directly to the field. Does that make sense? It does. And we did find out if you're going to play video games with each other, you have to wear masks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's signs of the time, man. Signs of the times. Yeah. I, I, I wanted someone to tell Brian Kelly that you can play video games with each other and not be in the same room. You can do that online these days. <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> sit next to each other and play video games together. Um, oh, that's funny. Corey, you talked about Ian Book and how much you love him. What is it about Ian Book that you think makes him such a successful quarterback and has you um, maybe optimistic that he some of the issues he's had in the first two games will kind of uh, go away throughout the season? Well, I think he's a winner. What, what's his record? It's like 20-something 20 20 and two. And <laughs> what three. is it? 22 and three. I, I mean, that is – Wow. I mean, we, we, and so obviously the record speaks for itself. But like I said, when you talk about his actual gameplay, I remember when we were really, or I'm trying to think, I don't know how many years ago. I, I feel so old, man. Uh, <laughs> when Ian was like a backup and uh, I was playing, we would go like before the games and we would throw, you know, just like, the, you know, everyone's just catching balls, warming up. And Ian would throw it so hard. And I remember like every single time I'm like, Ian, bro, relax. <laughs> we're about it. We're just warming up. You don't need to break my hands, you know, but you can see. Uh, and then after the, one of the games recently, Tommy Trimble was talking to Jack Collinsworth and said, like, you know, Ian isn't one of those guys who just like throws the ball really hard. And I'm like, dang, a lot has changed. You know, he's really matured a lot because <laughs> when I was playing with him, he would try to break my hands every time I tried to throw with him. But like, I, I think his maturity has also kind of um, been clearly evidenced um, in his leadership style. He's a guy who doesn't get rattled. He has great poise, great grace. He's a leader that will lead you into battle. Like he'll be the first one on the front line, you know, and you just can't, you can't, um, 
you can't even quantify that type of leadership. So that's why I love about him, the intangibles. But as far as the playing style, yeah, like he can put it on a dime. He can do the long ball. Like I said, he's a great dual threat quarterback. Even people, even though people don't necessarily think he's mobile, I don't know why they don't, they think that way. When he's in open space, he makes guys miss it. You know, he's very elusive um, and he's faster than he looks. So I love his game. Yeah, he's about to become the number two rushing quarterback in Notre Dame history with 80 more yards in his career. So only Tony Rice will be ahead of him once he gets to that point. So. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like sneaky elusive. So, I mean, like I said, I, I'm a huge fan of his game, but I think the intangibles are what really make him stand out to me. Like he's a, he's a real leader. You know, we will get this question on our podcast today, and I will get it in my live chat tomorrow and probably every live chat until the end of the season. And it's about Phil Dracovic and how he's doing at Boston College. And people wonder why he's not the starting quarterback at Notre Dame. And and I, I wonder if somebody asked you that question, how how you would answer it. I haven't been watching BC. I've been watching, you know, just Notre Dame. So I can't really speak on that. But I will say as far as like fits are concerned, you know, Notre Dame's a hard place to to play. I mean, you're going to – you have the – there's so many stressors on campus when it comes to like, you know, you're at a top 20 university. Um, you, you're playing Notre Dame football and all the, the weight of the tradition and lore. Um, and there's the, fo- the faith component too, where like, you know, you're traveling with priests and like you have like theology courses. Like it's just, a, you, you have mass in your dorm. Like it's a different kind of um, atmosphere that doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't work for everybody. And, you know, I had friends who transferred and they, once they transferred, they did way, way better at other places, right? I mean, it's just like, it's not necessarily about going to a place that has all the prestige. It's about going to the best fit for you. And if that's what this quarterback found at, you know, at BC, then that's what he found. And I don't have any issues with that and best of luck to him. But, you know, um, it's hard to play at ND and if you can make it work, it's really good for you. But if it doesn't, then it doesn't work for you. Corey, you, you talked about how Ian Book has kind of matured throughout his years as, as an Notre Dame quarterback. I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on how Brian Kelly has evolved throughout his time at Notre Dame. Um, I think there seems to have been a, a pretty significant shift after the 2016 season with that being such a, a tough season for Notre Dame. Uh, how have you kind of seen how he has changed since maybe early on in your career to, to now? Yeah, I, mean, I love um, Coach Kelly. I, I think – when I, I mean, I haven't been around the team this year, right? So I don't necessarily know what it's like in the locker room. But I think that um, over the years, coaches kind of become more, I think, of like a, of a, like a player's coach in the sense of like, um, I just think of that image I saw of him and Dalen Hayes at the Juneteenth March, right? Um, yeah, and I said, and I said that to Jack Collinsworth before, where like, I don't think I would have seen that my freshman year. You know, in the sense of like, I, I, I don't know. So I think coach has done a, a really great job of kind of being a champion for his guys. And I think that is evidenced in who returns to his Kelly Cares events. Like you go, they go it's like the who's who of Notre Dame football um, for the past like six years. You know, Joe Schmidt comes back. Deshaun Kaiser comes back. Brandon Wimbush is there. Stefan Tewitt is there. Um, Brady Quinn's. I mean, it's like everyone comes back for coach. Um, even people who didn't play for him. <laughs> right. And I think that speaks really high uh, volumes of the kind of man that he is and what he stands for. So um, yeah, I, I really appreciate what coach has done for me personally and for the program. Speaking of quarterbacks, you know, that 2014 season Everett, you know, started very, very strong, then really kind of struggled. And at the end of the year, um, 
you know, Brian made a change and went to Malik and, and then Everett ended up transferring to Florida state of all places. Um, I'm wondering if you um, are still in touch with Everett at all and kind of what, how that whole thing played out at the end of 2014. What, how was that from a receiver standpoint, having that change made late in the year? No, I'm not. I haven't talked to Evan a long time, so I don't know um, how he's doing. Hope he's doing well. Um, but yeah, this first receiver, one of the, like I said, it's all about chemistry. So what happens when you have like a quarterback battle in preseason is, you, you know, you're basically trying to fight for reps with the QB so you can guy, you can feel each other out. And like I said, it's all the way that I look at football is very much a feel thing. Um, like they got to know when, when you're running like a, like a slant, for instance, like where's the pocket and then when is the quarterback going to release it? And like all this stuff, like that's all feel. So it's hard when you only have, let's say 20 reps and the starters take, you know, 12 of those with the, the starter and then the backup takes eight and then they change starters later on in the season. You're like, wait a second. I don't even know. I don't even have any reps. I don't have any chemistry with this other guy or, um, so that's kind of the hard part from a receiver standpoint. But the good news is that, you know, we're all around each other all the time. So you get to know each other very well. And I actually played with Malik way back. Like, I mean, we go back to like junior year in high school. We would go to all the camps together. Like, I think we were at the opening together. Like we've been, so I had known Malik's game for a long time. So for me personally, it wasn't that big of a, a change because I already knew how Malik played. I already played with him for years at that point. Corey, you, you joined NBC Sports this year as a reporter and digital correspondent, as I mentioned earlier. How did that sort of come about, and did you always want to pursue a job in media? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, you guys would always come talk to us after practice, and I, I didn't even think that was like a career option. Like, I didn't know. I just didn't really know. I thought it was just like professional football, maybe like a coach, you know, and then like that was like all that existed. I didn't know you could do broadcasting, reporting, or digital correspondence. So now it's it's funny that I'm on your team, right? <laughs> and it's it's really cool uh, being able to help tell people's stories. So I did not know it existed really, which is kind of funny, um, being in such close proximity to it. But I'm super stoked that I got the opportunity, and I joined in January. And now you know I get to be around athletes and help them tell their stories and amplify their voices, um, which is what you know when I was playing I always hoped someone would do that for me so it's cool that I get to be on the other side and pay it forward for the next generation of athletes and selfishly I get to be around sports every day I get to watch sports for a living and talk about it. it's like what a dream job it's awesome yeah yeah that's we can we can probably all agree that that's the best part of the job <laughs> yeah it's like it's unbelievable I, I used to work at an in, in art gallery and I love art and one of the best things about art is that during my coffee break you know I get to go downstairs and I used to work in an auction house so there'd be like a Monet hanging on the wall. It's like you're in, like you're working in a museum. So like, you know, when you're walking to go to the bathroom, you look at a, at a Picasso, <laughs> you know, right. that's the perks of that job. And this job, it's like the perk is, oh, I know I have to watch the NBA finals tonight, take notes and then talk about it. It's like, that's unbelievable. It's what a cool job. Well, I'll tell you, Corey, our jobs have changed a lot because of the pandemic. Uh, and hopefully just for this year, or just for, maybe maybe a year, uh, and then we can kind of go back to normal. But it sounds like you were, at least the plan for you was going to be more Notre Dame stuff pre-pandemic, and it still sounds like you may end up doing more Notre Dame stuff down the road. Is that kind of how you're seeing it, or is it is it not clear yet? Hey, look, my 
I don't, I'm not like a, what's it called? A fortune teller. I don't really understand what the future holds. I'm with you. Look, I, I get an assignment. I do it to the best of my ability and I move on to the next one. So if that's another day in football, so be it. That'd be awesome. But right now I'm working on, uh, you know, like hockey gaming and esports, doing some like A10 basketball reporting. So I'm going to do what, uh, you know, I'm going to do my best job with what I have. And, and, you know, you were somebody that was very involved in things outside of football when you were at Notre Dame, including student government. I'm wondering if you kind of have found the sweet spot in terms of telling these stories with, because politics is part of sports now and social justice is part of sports now. And yet there's an incredible pushback from parts of the population that want sports to be their distraction. So I wonder if you've kind of found the sweet spot with the perfect mix of um you know what's going on in the world and what's going on in sports yeah it's funny because i think sports and and um social justice have always been in like, intertwined um because even in my locker room that's the one place where it doesn't matter where you come from or what religion you are or what color you are like it doesn't matter if you can play you can play you know and we're all family and we're all going to go out there and sacrifice for each other so I think in that sense, it's it's interesting um, because it's like, to me, the, the two are inexplicably linked. Like you can't separate. Uh, and also when you think about it right now, you're looking at players who want to be seen as human beings and not as, you know, just entertainment. So they're like, look, like just because I have to go out there and play and I want to play and I get to play, that doesn't detract from what I, you know, experience when I'm not on the arena and on the floor. Um, so it, to me, it's like, okay, well, these, you know, these, this is, this kind of makes sense. And it's always been like that. Um, but it is interesting to see this like worldwide awakening. No, I have not found a sweet spot. <laughs> if I, if I did, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe I'd be like the chief correspondent for like NBC proper news. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, uh, but no, I have not found a sweet spot, but it's cool just being able to tell people stories, like I said, and amplify their platform because this is important to them. And if you're a fan of an athlete, um, you probably want to know what's important to them, not just, you know, what shoes they wear, uh, what their pregame fit is, but also what they believe, right? You know, like that's something that, you know, is a, is a part of them. And if you're a fan of them in one way, you should probably also be interested in what they are interested in off the, off the field as well. Or you had kind of rotten luck with entering the sports media field right before the pandemic happened and sports <laughs> kind of shut down. Uh, I noticed you seem to have embraced your, your Instagram page a lot in, come with different creative ways to recap what's going on in sports and doing some other same things to show your personal side. Do you think you were even giving piano lessons at one point? Uh, how, how important and valuable do you think that has been in terms of trying to establish what, what your role is and what, what you can offer to, to, I guess, either listeners or, or viewers uh, that want to catch up with what you're doing? Yeah. You know, it's funny because it's like, um, it's almost like, you know, I have some friends who are, who, who are like musicians and, you know, before you needed to have a record label to like release an album. But now in theory, like you can just go to SoundCloud and just put stuff out there and see what sticks. And it's funny because now like you don't need to go on, you know, a show on network television, a talk show to get an opinion across. You know, anyone can just download an app and then just start talking um, and see what sticks. So that's what's been great for me is it's almost like another studio is being able to like see, okay, well, let, let me let me learn how to define my voice. Let me like figure out ways to uh, to kind of engage in these conversations that before were really inaccessible. 
So I, I really enjoyed that. It's allowed me to kind of do everything because, you know, I can talk about the Tour de France. <laughs> you know, like in what world would I, you know, have a chance to go re- be a reporter for the Tour de France? But in this case, like I can actually have an opinion and weigh in on it. And then the very next day, talk about Premier League. And then the very next day, talk about Notre Dame football and then NBA Finals. So that to me is the coolest thing. It's like whatever I'm interested in and I can just kind of talk about. Um, and I, I have an ac- you know, I have an access point to do that. Corey, back before you guys played in the um, Shamrock Series game down in Dallas, you did like a living on a prayer. Uh, all, all bunch of different players were singing. And so I'm. they're going through the tape, and TJ Jones is way off key. And, I, and then all of a sudden you pop on, and I'm like, okay, what's this going to sound like? And it was perfect pitch you know, perfect lyrics. And I'm like, is there anything this guy can't do? And why I bring that up is I think at one point you have some pretty big dreams about making an impact, a big impact on the world. And I think you can do that in just about any profession, but do you still kind of have those dreams about really wanting to impact the world in a big way? Well, thank you. If you want to know what I can't do, just ask my brothers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They'll give you a long, detailed list. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the way that I look at it is, you know, uh, I think there was a saying um, that I kind of grew up around, which was start where you are, do with what you do what you can and never look back. So it's not necessarily about kind of setting out to make a big impact on the world. It's just like, where am I? You know, and at Notre Dame, I was on a football team that it was, you know, nationally recognized. So I was like, okay, well, I can do what I can here on the football team. And then I found out that there was a thing called student government and I could do it there too. Now I live in New York and I work in, you know, sports and there's a lot of stories that need to be told. And now I'm in a position where I can just, you know, live in this community and work in this community and hopefully make um, someone's life better today in some small way. And I think that, you know, over time, that builds on each other. And then, you know, after 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years of doing that, you can hopefully um, have made some sort of impact that's positive. So that's the way I look at it. I don't look at it as like some grandiose thing. It's just, how can I, how can I spread life today? You know, I don't want to suck someone's life today. I want to be able to, to um, just speak life into people's uh, worlds today. And if I can do that every day, then hopefully that that'll make a difference. Uh, Corey, I mentioned Instagram earlier. I noticed you're participating in a, a shared reading project. I noticed that you posted about it on Instagram. That's why I'm using that as a transition. Uh, a shared reading program through Notre Dame about a book called Black Domers. Can you tell us what your role is in that and how people can get involved if they'd like to? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for bringing that up. So we just launched um, yesterday, actually, this national shared read um, for the Alumni Association. I, I'm a part of this um, board for the Alumni Association and uh, all the affinity groups, which are just kind of like, think about, you know, Notre Dame Women Connect, Notre Dame Senior Alumni, Notre Dame Black Alumni, Asian Pacific, Hispanic Alumni, Young Alumni, all of us have come, uh, Native American Alumni, all of us have come together um, to figure out a way that we can promote dialogue, meaningful dialogue, which will then turn into action, you know, about um, the minority experience at Notre Dame, particularly in this case, right, the black experience at Notre Dame. So it, like most things, when you want to understand something, you have to go to the beginning. So we actually, there's a great book called Black Domers that starts in the 1940s, you know, with Frazier Thompson, the first um, black student at Notre Dame. And it goes all the way up into the current time in the 2010s. 
So it's a great kind of uh, overview of what the Notre Dame experience has been like, what it is like, and then hopefully, you know, these students today can write what it will be like. And we just want the Notre Dame community to, to share in that. So every week, um, starting this week, we're going to read uh, one decade. So we're very excited about it. Everyone can follow along on think.nd.edu. Just go to the series page and find the Black Domers. But um, yeah, we'd love to have you participate. All right, Corey. Well, I think that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking some of your time to share your insight with us. Thank you all for having me. And go Irish. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame, Florida State. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under four and a half catches for Tommy Tremble. Um, he's, you know, he's going to be in that range. I'm going to go under because I think the ball's just going to get spread all around a lot in this game with all those receiver wide receivers coming back. I, I think he'll probably have three or four and he'll knock some people on their keister. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe we're going to have to start adding uh, Tommy Tremble pancake blocks to, uh, to our prop bets, but I'm going to go over. I, I think I, I am a little, I get worried. Isn't the right way to, to describe it because I think that's what you want to see is Ian spread the ball around and get some other guys involved in the offense. But I, I think that he'll probably continue to rely on Tommy still. So I will go over. I don't know that he's going to have like eight catches or anything, but I think he can get five or six. Next one over under 95 rushing yards for Kyron Williams. Um, you know, I think he's certainly capable of going over a hundred. Again, I think with, the team having missed nine days of practice that Lance Taylor is going to be a little bit more uh, willing to dip into four or five options at the running back. So I don't know that he's going to get enough carries to get, get that figure. So I'm going to go under with Kyron. Yeah. I'm going to go under as well. Kind of buying into the same thinking that you had there. I think Notre Dame will have a, pretty decent share of the running back workload probably this week. Um, but watch as after we say that he'll probably have a 200 yard game or something, but I think that's at least, at least in my mind, predicting how this game plays out. I think they're will be able to run the ball, but I think they'll use a number of different guys to do so. Uh, next one we have is over under two and a half touchdown passes for Ian book. Well, I'm kind of giving away a little bit of my score prediction. I, I think, uh, you know, let's say they have four or five touchdowns. I still think they're going to want to run the ball in two or three of those times, depending on how many touchdowns. So I, I don't think it's going to be over over two and a half. I think it'll be probably one or two. Yeah, I'm going to go over. I think there's a, a probably better than the previous two games is a better chance of having some big plays in the passing game with a fully healthy Lindsay. Obviously, Kevin Austin pitching in. Um, and making his debut uh, for the first time in two seasons now. Uh, so I, I think that those guys could potentially increase the number. I think um, Tommy Tremble has a chance to get in the end zone with a touchdown pass or touchdown catch. Um, so I'll, I'll go over. I think I think Ian probably wants to I, – I don't, I don't know that Ian's probably terribly excited about how he's played the first two games either. Um, so I think he'll he'll want to go out and prove something and and maybe throw throw a couple more touchdown passes than he has in the previous games. Next one I have is will Isaiah Foskey record a sack? 
Well, Florida State has given up a lot of sacks this year. They've given up 11. So I'm going to say Isaiah Foskey and everybody else on the roster named Isaiah will might have one as well. <laughs> All right. A cornerback uh, sack for Isaiah Rutherford. Huh? That's, that'll be fun. Uh, yeah, but I think uh, I'm going oh, yes as well. I think Florida State has allowed almost four sacks per game against defensive lines that aren't necessarily as good as Notre Dame. So I think uh, Notre Dame will – be uh, really uh, making it a tough day for Florida State's quarterbacks, and we'll we'll say quarterbacks plural because they've already used three this season. We'll see how many actually see the see the field uh, against Notre Dame. Uh, next one: Will Notre Dame intercept a pass? Well, again, that's something that the Florida State quarterbacks have not been good at. They've thrown a lot of interceptions. Now, Jordan Travis played really well against Jacksonville State. I don't think Jacksonville State was in the position to pressure uh, the quarterback as much as Georgia Tech and Miami were. But, yeah, I'm going to say there's going to be at least one interception. And the one quarterback that we haven't seen is uh, Chubba Purdy, who is uh, the Iowa State quarterback's little brother. He's been injured, or I think we would have seen him as well. Yeah, the Jordan Travis will, will make the start, and he – uh, played well against Jacksonville State, though he did throw an interception in his very brief uh, stint against Miami. Um, I, he's I I inexperienced. Um, I think Notre Dame's defense, while there are some question marks in the secondary, um, with Kyle Hamilton returning um, and those guys hopefully in a healthy spot going into the game, uh, I think Notre Dame will have a pretty good chance of intercepting a pass, so I will predict yes as well. Then the last one, final score prediction. Well, I think the nine – practice days off is going to show up in this game a little bit. I think where Florida State really gets has had problems the past couple of years is if the other team starts strong, which Notre Dame did the last time Florida yeah. State. But I, I think it's going to be a slow start for Notre Dame. I think they're just going to have to kind of find their timing and their footing. So I don't think the margin is going to be quite as large as the one-point spread that I saw. So I'm going to go Notre Dame 31, Miami 13. All right. I yeah, You mean Florida State, not Miami. That would be – Florida State. Florida <laughs> State. I wrote down Miami. So that's what I was going to say. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. I, I, I was looking at the Miami score because I was like, man, if Miami beat them by that, can't Notre Dame do that too? But I don't think it's going to be as lopsided as the of Miami-Florida State game. Um, I think that Notre Dame has some rest to work out. Um, I think Notre Dame maybe won't score as many points as, as Miami did. I think Miami scored 52 points against Florida State. Um, so I, I'm predicting Notre Dame 38, Florida State 14. Okay. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right. Let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one we have is from Christian Bogan at C underscore Bogan 1989. What's your excitement level to get to watch Kyle Hamilton hopefully play a full game? Anyone else you're looking forward to see play against FSU? My excitement level against – of anybody playing is pretty high after not having covered a game the past two weeks. So 
it could be the, you know, the Rudy of this team, and I'd be happy to see them out there. Yeah, I'm excited to see Kyle Hamilton, but other, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, I know what I'm going to get from Kyle Hamilton. That's the thing. I think what I'm curious about are the Buck linebackers because you're going to see Maris Leofau and Shane Simon back on there. I want to see how they kind of compare to Jack Kaiser. Um, Kevin Austin is somebody I really want to see play. I haven't seen a lot of him uh, since he's been at Notre Dame a little bit right. as a freshman. Uh, Ian Book, I want to see what kind of uh, form he's in, again, with the layoff. The running back rotation, want to see what that looks like. And the Tariq Bracey-Clarence Lewis combination at one of the cornerbacks. That's kind of a fascinating play because they each played incredibly well as a starter and then didn't play the other game. So how you split up that playing time between those two is really going to be interesting to me. Yeah, I think I think those are all good. And I'm on the same page with you as, as I'm excited to see anyone play uh, this weekend now uh, that Notre Dame's got the COVID-19 under control. Um, so uh, we'll be looking forward to no matter who's on the field. Um, but a, a lot of my um, looking forward for this week is kind of gauging where the wide receivers are at. What do they look like? Um, how what how, how how the chemistry is between Ian Book and those guys, um, and where can this passing game move forward? That's what I asked Brian Kelly about yesterday during his press conference, and it's what I'm most interested in tracking going into this game. I think we have a better sense of the rest of the offense now after the first two games. Now, certainly, there's plenty of things that can develop and evolve um, based off of the the start Notre Dame had, but. Um, just going into this game, I really want to see where that passing game is at and if um, there are signs of more upside than there has been in the first two games. Next one is from NDF underscore Discord. Florida State seems to have completely switched their offense mid-game during the Jacksonville State game to a run-heavy spread option. They look noticeably better. From Notre Dame's perspective, does this give you more concern or do you think it plays into ND's strength with their defensive front seven? Well, I didn't see the game, so I'm going to take him out at his <laughs> word that he's uh, on top of things. So so the gist of the question is – give me the gist of the question again because there was a lot there. I, yeah, I do, does, does, does Florida State running a run-heavy spread option give you more concern or do you think it plays into Andy's strength with the way that Notre Dame's front seven is? Well, I think it plays into Notre Dame's strength. Because Notre Dame, I think, is going to be a much improved run defense this year. I think they have yeah. the personnel too, and I think they have the that that's a goal of theirs is to be a really good run defense team. And then it comes down to really Florida State's offensive line, and you know they haven't been good in protecting the passer. You know they've done okay running the ball and so forth, but. I'm not really concerned with what Florida State is doing offensively, uh, schematically. I, you know, the, the thing about them is they're somewhat self-destructive. You know, they're one of the top teams in penalties in all of the FBS. They turn the ball over. So I think it's not so much of a scheme thing as them just executing and not, you know, being their own worst enemy. Right. Yeah, I – to me, I, I don't think 
there was anything that Florida State could have done in the Jacksonville State game that really would have <laughs> concerned me or uh, uh, piqued my interest very much. Uh, I mean, obviously, if they would have lost, that would have been funny, but um, I don't know that um, necessarily how they ran their offense in that game will be a, what they want to do against Notre Dame. Um, I don't think that Notre Dame's run defense should be a concern. Um, Douglas Farmer actually tweeted a stat this morning, so I didn't have to look up any stats. Uh, in his last four games, Notre Dame has given up a total of 338 rushing yards on 118 carries, so it's less than three yards per carry against that would be Stanford, Iowa State, um, Duke, and USF. So I think uh, if, if Florida State wants to try and beat Notre Dame by doing that, I don't think Notre Dame's going to be uh, too concerned about that. Um, although we do have a question about the Buck linebacker position, I think pretty much the rest of the defensive front seven, I think uh, you should have pretty good confidence in right now. Uh, next question is from Notre Dame at Notre Dame tweets with a Z seeing as Tyler Buckner is coming next season. And this may be the last time the backups could see valuable time at what score lead in the second half. Do you bring in Brendan Clark? And secondly, does Clark get as many reps as Kevin Austin? Well, I think you need to look at the rest of the schedule because I think Georgia Tech, Syracuse, and Wake Forest will also be games where the backups could play. So I think you're maybe overselling some of the remaining opponents. I do think it's important for for Brendan Clark to play just because something could happen to Ian Book at some point. The problem is Ian Book needs to play more than Brendan Clark needs to play. (laughs) Yeah. And, and some of that is because of the layoff. Some of that is you're reintroducing Kevin Austin. You're getting the best version of Braden Lindsay. You're reintroducing Ben Skoranek. So you need some chemistry w- with those guys. I think if you see enough of that in this game that you feel confident, then you bring Brendan Clark in. And if, if it takes all game to work that through, then I think you sacrifice and try to work Brendan in maybe at the end of the Louisville game on October 17th. Yeah, I think if you had a four-touchdown lead in the second half, then maybe Brennan Clark comes in. Certainly, if it's late in the fourth quarter, maybe it could be a three-touchdown lead. Um, but I don't I don't anticipate him necessarily getting more reps than Kevin Austin. Uh, Brian Kelly said yesterday that uh, Kevin Austin will probably be in the 15 to 20 snap range. So that would be two or three series for, for Brennan Clark probably um, to match that or even more. Um, so – on the off chance that Notre Dame's offense doesn't come out guns blazing and um, doesn't run up a big lead, um, I would probably lean towards Austin getting more reps than than Brendan Clark in this Florida State game. But like you mentioned, I think there are a number of different opportunities throughout the season that Notre Dame will have to get its backup quarterback in, um, and we'll see um, Brendan Clark uh, in those in those chances. Next question is from Scott Reed at Greedy1967. How many touches for Kevin Austin? Well, based on the – we'll go with the calculus of 15 to 20 plays and uh, that there's a whole bunch of other receivers that want the ball too. I'm going to say four touches. I think it's important to get him involved in those 15 to 20 plays because he – is the guy that can really change what defensive coordinators have to deal with. If he is everything that we think Kevin Austin can be eventually, like by the end of October, he changes the dynamic of your preparation for Notre Dame's offense. 
because you have to deal with him. And right now you haven't had to deal with anything like that. Braden Lindsay gives you some similar but different problems as a defensive coordinator, but we haven't seen the full blast of him yet either. Right. You can have both of those guys on the field. It, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. So um, I, I, I think you want to get a taste of, of that in this game. So four touches, I think, four catches, I'll say four catches. Yeah, I, I think, I don't think Notre Dame will use him in the running game sort of the way they've used Braden Lindsay. I think uh, um, Kevin Austin. Well, I thought you were going to say Javon McKinley. <laughs> <laughs> well, they certainly do use Javon McKinley in the running game in a different way, but uh, I don't think Kevin Austin will be afraid to block anyone either. I don't think that'll be an issue. Um, uh, but I, I think so. I think his touches will be catches. Um, that's where I was going with that. Um, and I, I put like five receptions as, as, as maybe a, a reasonable amount for Kevin Austin. I don't know that they're going to overwork him. And I don't know they're, that they're going to throw to him like every time he's out on the field or anything like that. So um, with a limited workload, um, five catches might even be a little, a little high. But I think that is what I would potentially like to see from Kevin Austin based on him being physically able to go out there and not have any sort of uh, setbacks or, or limitations that prevent him from playing his, at least what we think he can be or some, some version of that. Next question is from at Frank Sarah three. Do you think Notre Dame will rush for 150 yards against Florida state considering they will stack the box and force Notre Dame to throw downfield? Well, I mean, everybody can say they they're going to stack the box and force you to throw, but it doesn't always work that way. Right. Um, if, you know, Georgia Tech rushed for 161 yards on 40 carries, and Georgia Tech is not known for being an elite passing team. Yeah. Uh, Miami ran for 200 on 37 carries. Now, Jacksonville State only ran for 63 on 22, which is probably what you get from a pass-oriented uh, FCS team. Uh, so, yeah, I think Notre Dame can rush for more than 150 yards against Florida State. They should. If they can't, then it's not going to be the season that we we think. I, I think, you know, you got a really good offensive line. There's some pretty good backs. 150 seems pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, I think they'll surpass 150 yards. I, I don't think Florida State will be able to dictate what Notre Dame's offense wants to do. I think Notre Dame will do what they want, and I don't know that what Florida State – um, is either trying to do or is able to even do in the game will necessarily impact Notre Dame's play calling or game plan. Um, and in terms of stacking the box, I think Notre Dame can also stack the box too with some, some pretty good blocking tight ends. I think that could help out if, they, uh, if they're worried about that. But I think uh, Notre Dame should be, should be okay in terms of uh, the rushing yard total against Florida State. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher15. Why no Jack Kaiser on the depth chart this week? Are we to assume he's in COVID protocol? And uh, at Joshua Melton also added, did this surprise you? Um, I don't think you should assume that he's in COVID protocol. Um, I think what we know is that at the beginning of the week, Shane Simon and Maris Leofow weren't in COVID protocol. Um I got some clarification on the philosophy of the depth charts because it's different this year. And if you're on the depth chart on Monday, that means you are either uninjured or COVID free on Monday. Now things could change during the week. So 
Maris Leofau and Shane Simon were ahead of Jack when they were COVID free. And that was based on several weeks of training camp. And so I think Jack Kaiser still is going to have a role. He's still going to have a chance to prove himself. Uh, and I think he'll play and he'll play in some packages, but, you know, I think Notre Dame wants to see what these two other guys can, can do. And then they can kind of figure out if Jack Kaiser's moved up. Uh, you know, I know that he's the favorite right now, but even Jack would say those other two guys are a little bit more consistent. Now that may change over the course of the season right? because he gained a lot of valuable experience against USF. Yeah, uh, Clark Lee has evaluated these guys much longer than the one game that we saw Jack Kaiser play. Um, so I, I, it's not surprising to me that um, he put those guys that were out of the lineup either due to a positive COVID test or a, or being caught up in contact tracing, um, that those guys would get their spots back um, because they had earned those spots. They wouldn't have necessarily been in those positions if – uh, if it wasn't for what they had done leading up to the, the season opener. Um, so I, I think Jack has a better chance of playing now, and I think Notre Dame probably trusts him more after what he did against USF. But I think assuming he's the starter moving forward after playing a, a bad USF team was getting a little bit too excited. I think it deserved to be celebrated what he did, but it, it didn't it, – it didn't mean that he was the next Jalen Smith or anything either. Like we, we got to calm down. Like, yes, he played a good game and he could have a bright future at Notre Dame, but that doesn't mean he's the the starter moving forward right now. And that those other guys can, can prove that they have uh, the ability that Jack Kaiser showed against USF as well. Next question is from at NDF. Another question from NDF underscore discord. The CDC says the potential for reinfection is still not fully understood. What, Will a player who has already had COVID-19 and recovered be held out of football activity for contact tracing if they subsequently come into contact with another player who tested positive? I haven't asked anybody that question specifically. Right. I do know that the ACC guidelines address this somewhat in that if you have been tested positive for COVID, gone through the isolation and come out the other side and are now negative, you do not have to take another test for 90 days. So I'm going to assume from that language that you would not be subject to quarantine either if you were in close contact with somebody. As uh, you know, I think they probably would test you just to double check. But if you tested negative, then you wouldn't have to be quarantined. I'm still, from a personal standpoint, I have relatives that have had now covid and I'm still not sure if I'm safe to be around them now that they're coming out the other side of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough. And uh, yeah, we we haven't I haven't asked that either or gotten that clarified. Um, I, but I think your instinct is probably right that they would probably at least test those people again, even though that they weren't necessarily required to be tested again. Um, I think they would probably test those guys again if they were in a contact situation with those guys. And I think Notre Dame is going to try to be in a situation where they have fewer contact tracing as well. I mean, I think some of it, some of the contact tracing and even the spread was, was stuff that was stuff that they thought they were preventing by the team meal. I don't think that they would have held that team meal in the way they did if they thought it was putting them in, in a position to, to be in contact tracing. I thought that I think they probably intended it for not, for it to not work out that way. So that I think they're going to be more strict about how they, handle things in a number of ways. And so 
the contact tracing in theory should be limited to potentially like your roommates and stuff like that. Um, so I think that Notre Dame is probably hopeful that those, those instances decrease. Um, but I think that's something that's probably worth at least looking into at some point. Um, I, I think the, there are, to my knowledge, there aren't that many documented cases of someone um, getting COVID more than once at, at this point. I think there, there was at least one discovered at one point, but I'm not sure how many have since then. Um, so while there is still unclear, there isn't clarity on that, I think um, that Notre Dame may be safe in uh, assuming things, but maybe they want to be extra precautious too. I think that's um, – I, I don't think you could blame Notre Dame going either way on something like that. Uh, next question is from Irish fan 10 at Irish fan one zero two. What new protocols have been put in place following the pause to avoid another outbreak? What were the lessons learned? Well, I'm going to let Tyler take part of this because Tyler wrote a little bit more about the COVID stuff this week than I did. Um, but I think the lessons learned is that you have to be super vigilant. You have to be constantly evaluating what you're doing and um, that there were some surprises. And, and also I think because Notre Dame had been doing so well, maybe there was a little bit of uh, complacency that sl slid into, you know, how they were doing, maybe not always having their masks gone. And it's always interesting and weird to have these conversations because uh, the messaging that these kids are hearing and they hear it from outside their bubble is not always consistent. And there's lots of people that think masks don't work, but they live in a world where masks are compulsory and there's zero tolerance with that now. So um, they're going to have to listen to the messaging that's coming from their coach and their athletic department if they want to continue to play. Yeah. Based on how, uh, Rob Hunt, who's the head athletic trainer for the football program, um, described it. I think he he kind of talked about how it seemed like there may be some complacency once it gets towards the end of the week and everyone's like, hey, I tested negative three times this week, so I've hit the finish line. I can maybe relax a little bit through the weekend and through the game. But I think they, they want to make sure that they're staying well, following their protocols because if you if you tested negative on Friday, that doesn't mean necessarily that you are virus free. You could still have the virus. And that's seems to be what they discovered that guys that they thought were negative played in the game on Saturday. And then their viral load was higher by the time they tested again on Monday. And so they tested positive and that's sort of how the, the virus spread because some of those guys that maybe thought they were negative and maybe were maybe a little bit more lax with how they were following the protocol because they thought they didn't have the virus. So they weren't going to be sharing it with anyone else. Maybe have, maybe shared it with others um, because they were a little bit lax in those things. It's some of the things that we're getting more spacing at the, the team meals, um, which makes sense. Uh, um, a, a little surprising that that was something that maybe caught them up. Although I, I don't know exactly how positive they are for sure. Like this moment at this meal is when, when guys were, what was when the virus spread. I think that it's, it's more of a sort of a hypothesis than a, a, a detailed put a time and date on when, when the virus started spreading more because of the meal. Um, but I think that has infor informed their decision to sort of space out the meals more. They're going to eat pregame's meal in the convention center across the, across the street from the hotel that they stay in. Um, better mask usage, like you mentioned, being sort of a zero tolerance and guys not, not wearing their mask. I think even in the, 
the post-game video from the USF game, Brian Kelly told someone to put their mask on in the, in the post-game locker room. And, um, and just the locker room attendance in general, I think they've had a sort of system in place to uh, sort of phase guys in and out of the locker room so not everyone's in there at once. Um, uh, the, the term that Rob kept using was de-densify. So I don't know if that meant less guys at, at more times or exactly how that works, but it would be less crowded um, at, 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 in whatever phases and whatever plan they have. And I think that that's one area that they thought that they could be um, exposing themselves to potential spread. And, and I think uh, more spacing on the sideline as well as another place that they're going to do, because um, it, the, the theory is that transmission of the disease isn't necessarily at a high um, of the virus isn't necessarily at a high rate when you're playing the game, but when you're hanging out on the sidelines and you're around each other for a longer time, that could increase the contact potential and then the potential for you to spread it to each other. So I think those are sort of the areas that they're trying to, to uh, um, be more strict about and uh, prevent uh, more trip ups in the future. Next question is from Nick Blaschel at Nick Blaschel. Enjoyed your article on Notre Dame's offense by the numbers. Did you look into which formations are most effective, uh, e.g. under center, shotgun, and pistol? Anecdotally, it seems like the offense does better with book under center or in pistol, but I'm wondering if there are any numbers to confirm or refute my hypothesis. Um, I will handle that because I think he's referring specifically to my film analysis that I do after games. I haven't documented it by quarterback formation, um, but I think that's a good idea and it's something that I will add to my list for the Florida State game. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there's any anecdotal or uh, statistical evidence um, that says Book has been better or the offense is better when Book is under setter or in pistol. Um, I do know the most efficient personnel grouping for the first th- uh, two games was uh, three wide receivers at 6.8 yard, yards per play um, and uh, three tight ends were at six. yards per play. So not a huge difference, but when you're talking about a per play basis, it starts to add up, but um, that's something that's worth looking at, but I don't know how many people are locked in on that. I know Eric's got a story coming about offensive line play. That's a little nuts and boltsy too. Um, So I think uh, we at least had some more time these last two weeks to sort of consider some things. I wish I would have had this question during last week or something, because then I would have, I could have gone back and looked at it, but now we're, in another game week, I won't do that, but I can uh, sort of add that to the mix moving forward. Next question we have is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. If Ian Book does nothing to improve his draft stock this year, do you think there is any possibility he would want to come back for a sixth year? If so, would the staff want him back, or do you feel that after this year he will have run his course at Notre Dame? I think, you know, I- and he, he can come back based on the special COVID rules that the NCAA gave basically everybody another year of eligibility and a year to complete that. Uh, but I don't think Ian Book comes back. I think whatever happens, this will be the final chapter for him. Uh, and he'll want to move on with his life, whether it's in the business world or whether he wants to try to kind of sneak in a back door to the NFL or you know, I, I think that's just what's going to happen. And I think, you know, Tyler Buckner coming in, they're going to want to start uh, grooming those new quarterbacks and uh, Brendan Clark, Drew Pine, Tyler Buckner. And if they feel like they're too far away from somebody that can help them win games, they'll go out and get a 
grad transfer, and I'm sure there will be some good ones on the market this this time. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to imagine him wanting to come back for another year. Being that would make him a fourth year starter at quarterback for Notre Dame. I don't know that that's something that anyone wants to add that kind of stress to their life. Their life. Um, and the fact of the matter is, if if he's coming back, that would mean that he hadn't played well enough to pursue the NFL. Um, so I don't know that Notre Dame would necessarily want him back if he hadn't played well enough to do that. So it, it, it's a, it's a definitely an interesting situation. It would be a tough situation if he did want to come back and Notre Dame would have to figure out if that's what's best for them to have him back again. Um, but I, it just doesn't seem very likely to me that, that he would uh, come back and that Notre Dame would also want him back. It seems like, um, and it, I don't know, it, I don't know that he would be in a better position next year as opposed to this year. I think this is certainly the skill position guys, the wide receivers, um, they could be better next year than they are this year, but the offensive line probably isn't going to be better next year than it is this year. Um, so I just don't – I it, this was all – this always seemed to sort of be the peak of this kind of current team was going to be this year, and so it's kind of all or nothing. And I think that's part of the reason where why Ian Book is the guy and you don't necessarily – set your program in a different direction with trying to roll the dice on Phil Dracovic going into this season. If you would have stayed, uh, I think that's sort of why they, they were writing Ian book because they felt that they could get him to peak this season while the rest of the team is sort of peaking at the same time. Next question is from Rick Dyrolf at Rick Dyrolf one. Okay. So after watching Phil Dracovic through three games, it's clear he has skills book does not. He sees the field, throws the ball downfield and hangs in the pocket. All this with no spring practice, how could he not beat out Book? You know, these Phil Jacoba questions are hard for me, one, because I have to answer them every week <laughs> and, and we'll continue to. That's why I asked Corey Robinson, because I figured if he's got a good answer, I'm stealing his. <laughs> uh, and, and the other reason it's hard for me is because I was never down on uh, Phil. I always felt like there was still – a really good quarterback inside that that would work its way out if he could get past all the white noise that was kind of going on around him. And I don't think Chip Long was a good fit for Phil. And he left anyways, even after Chip left. But but let's look at this realistically right now. You know, would Phil, you know, and, and I think Corey alluded to this, would Phil be in as good a position at Notre Dame as he is now at BC. Now he doesn't have as good an offensive line at BC. And I think ultimately he won't have as good of receivers at BC, but it's a change of scenery. And it's also, you know, he can do no wrong at BC. So the, the pressure dynamic is very different. When you look at the numbers right now, I mean, Ian Book is 39th in pass efficiency and Phil is 35th. Um, I, I mean, again, if you're, asking should the coaching staff have made a change at some point when was that point you know ian book is 22 and 3 um what is it with phil that makes you think that that record could improve so i think it's you know not mutually exclusive that both could end up having good years but i think you know brian kelly has a track record of picking the right quarterback when he's been in these situations, the guys that have moved on haven't long-term been successful. 
and maybe Phil will be the first one, but that doesn't mean Ian Book can't be successful. Yeah, I think just to respond to what you, the question you posed about when you would change him, I think at least the, the responses that I've seen and people have asked me about is that they should have made the change after the Michigan game because last year your chance at the playoff was, was ended then, that the rest of the season should have been about building towards next year, which I think it, I think it still was with Ian Book at quarterback, but their thought is that wouldn't, we be, wouldn't this team have a higher potential if Phil Dracovic took over last year? played really well and goes into this year as the new starting quarterback going into the season. Um, but now, we did ask that question though. I mean, I remember asking that question myself. Right. And Brian, Brian Kelly kind of pushing back and saying he was the best he'd be playing. Right. And all that's happened since then is, you know, Notre Dame has the longest power five win streak in the country since that point. Um, so it's, it's hard to, argue with the winning thing, but I, I can see where people say what would happen in a game like Clemson. I mean, that's what, that's what the season is, is still building toward right. is can Ian book play elite level football against an elite opponent, which to this point, you can argue that he hasn't. Yeah. And I think to me, the thing that's exhausting, and I tweeted a little bit about this uh, on Saturday is that, everyone that thought Phil Dracovic should have been playing over Ian Book is going to like whatever they see when he does at Boston College. Phil Dracovic has played okay at Boston College. He's done fine. He's won some games. He's led some comeback drives, but he's not, like, lighting the world on fire there. Um, And I think people are – they see him make one nice throw and they see him looking good in shoulder pads because he's a much bigger kid than Ian Book is. And they're like, wow, I really wish that guy was lining up playing quarterback for Notre Dame. But I think everyone is sort of confirming what they have already believed rather than sort of letting things play out and, and see how, how they go. I think um, Ian, certainly how Ian Book plays against Clemson will probably dictate how we feel about Ian Book uh, and whether or not maybe that decision was the right decision or not. But I think we have to see how that plays out. I don't think you can say after two games this season that, okay, Ian Book can't play well against Clemson. We're, we're doomed. I think you got to kind of wait and see how that plays out. Um, I think um, everyone needs, needs to relax a little bit. I, I watched the Boston College North Carolina game, and I didn't necessarily see the same things that Rick Dyrolf was saying. Uh, I even had some, someone reached out to me before – the, so West Virginia Baylor ran into overtime, and so the the Boston College game didn't even, hadn't even started on ABC yet. I don't know where else they were broadcasting the game, but I didn't find it where it was at. I didn't look that hard, but I figured I would just watch the game once it came on. And before it even came on, someone had already like was convinced that Phil Dracovic is playing great already, and this is why Ian Book sh- shouldn't be our quarterback. And I was like, how did you did you really seek this game out and, and find it on another channel? just so you could have that takeaway or you just saw one highlight on, on, on Twitter of him throwing a touchdown pass and like, Oh, that's why Phil Dracovic should be our quarterback. I, it's just, we're, we're looking at such small windows of, of, of evidence of why Phil Dracovic is better than Ian book. And I, I'm not willing to rule out one way or the other, but I think we just need to sort of let it all play out um, because Phil Dracovic had a lot of short passes against Boston college he averaged five and a half yards per attempt. That's not a great number. He's not, he wasn't stretching the field necessarily against North Carolina. Um, he had a few nice throws downfield, but they were they, it wasn't like a regular part of their offense. There were a lot of short throws to running backs and tight ends. Um, now, certainly he has plenty of time 
to to mature and become a better quarterback than he is right now. Um, and so that's where you see potential upside for Phil. But I think everyone needs to sort of let this play out a little bit more before they jump to the conclusions, which I believe they've already jumped to in their minds, whether or not they believe Ian Book is right for the job. Because there are people that's, that don't want Phil to succeed, and they think that Brian Kelly made the right choice and that, that Ian Book is the better quarterback. And so I think people need to sort of just let things play out and, and, and see how uh, how things stand after this year and even a year down the road for Phil Dracovic. Uh, next question is from Keith at Soccer Guy 8801. What position group on the team do you think can have the biggest growth potential in terms of improvement from now until the end of the season? Well, I would say cornerbacks and wide receivers. And the cornerbacks have already kind of started at a higher level than I right. expected them to, but I think they can bring more numbers to that group. Um, and then the wide receiver certainly – there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of numbers there. Um, if, you know, kind of behind those two, I'd say running backs and tight ends, although the tight ends have been pretty good already. Right. And the running backs have been kind of a surprise. But again, I think the running backs need to continue to come on. They need to be, they need to be also ready to play against Clemson. What's happened to Notre Dame in the six losses that they've had in the last three seasons is the running back or the running game has dried up in those big games. And then it puts more pressure on Ian book uh, to, to be the guy that digs them out of that. Yeah. I think the two positions you mentioned, cornerbacks and receivers would probably are probably good ones. I think cornerbacks going into the season, I had, I would have probably suggested that as the answer, but now how the way the season has started, I think I'm leaning towards wide receivers just because the cornerbacks have played pretty well. And I think you like what you see from Clarence Lewis, which it wasn't a, which wasn't necessarily something you were counting on going into the season at all. Um, so that gives them a little bit more depth there. And um, heck, we even thought Sean Crawford would be at that position when he's playing safety right now. So um, I think there still is room for growth there because you probably have guys even beyond Nick McLeod and Tariq Bracey, um, uh, like uh, Cam Hart, and even Isaiah Rutherford that could potentially um, develop and, and have more of a role this year. Um, but the receivers, yeah, I, 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 that's the one that there's the biggest growth potential because I think we all sort of assume that they would be fine because we like the talent there and um, we kind of figured everything would work out, but it hasn't yet. Um, that doesn't mean it won't. And I think um, I would lean towards the positive and optimistic side on that, that they will but I still think there is a lot of room for growth there um, between now and the end of the season. Next question is from Douglas at Oogler E5. Clark Lee has been the man. We probably won't keep him past this season. Who is next? Who would you want? And will the defense continue to be as good without him? I hate this problem, by the way. Um. So if Clark Lee left at the end of this year, it would be for a pretty good power five head coaching job. Right. And it would likely be one where academics was not an afterthought. And I think that probably his alma mater uh, Vanderbilt might have an opening after this season. I actually thought they would last season. Um, so that would seem kind of like the logical place for him to go. Yeah, the, the equation, not just for Vanderbilt, for everyone is different because 
these athletic departments are going to be in such worse financial shape that if your coach has a decent buyout, then it's going to be probably hard to swallow that in the current sort of economic climate. But go ahead. Sorry, Eric. No, that, I mean, that's, I, I don't know what um, coach Mason's contract. I would think he's getting toward the end of it. So I don't know that he'd have a huge buyout. Hopefully they didn't extend him at some point because he hasn't been very good there. Um, but then who would take over for uh, Clark? And usually I'd say, man, you know, uh, that is something that didn't even enter my mind. Strangely with this, it did. Um, I, I think Mike Elston would be the new defensive coordinator. I think that Brian couldn't hire him when Van Gorder left. He had to hire somebody from the outside and then when, when Mike Elko left sudden, very suddenly after one year, I think, again, there was a way to keep both Clark Lee and Mike Elston, and Brian figured out how to do that. You know, Mike Elston is basically second in command behind Brian Kelly. He's an associate head coach, so he makes the money. He's got the authority. So there's a really a great collaboration of defensive coaches. So I think Elston would become the defensive coordinator. Um, I think that Terry Joseph would get some kind of promotion um, because I think he's really important to what they do. Mike Mickens has done a great job. If you're going to go outside, I would go after Marcus Freeman from Cincinnati, who coached with Mike Mickens. I think he is really, really good. You know, he wouldn't come here just as a linebackers coach even though that's what he coaches. But if he were going to be your defensive coordinator and Mike Elston was happy with the associate head coach role, then I, I would bring Marcus Freeman. And he's a heck of a recruiter too. Um, almost came to Notre Dame, ended up at Ohio State instead as a player. Yeah, the, this is sort of a tangent, but you mentioned Mike Elston sort of being second in charge. It's been kind of weird to me that Brian Kelly – He's been asked twice now, I think, of who would take over if he had COVID, essentially. Um, and the first time he gave a joke answer, and the second time he avoided giving an answer. And my assumption was always that it would be Mike Elston. So it's been kind of weird that he hasn't said that. I don't know if Brian Kelly's just uncomfortable in talking about it, and that's why he hasn't said that. I don't think there's any necessarily discord between uh, Brian Kelly and Mike Elston, but that's just been a sort of a strange thing about how Brian Kelly's handled talking about that publicly, in my opinion. But it's sort of unrelated to this. Um, I think he just hasn't wanted to get into it. I mean, there's certain stuff. I don't think it's anything against Elson. I just think he – No, I, I don't think so either. It's just I, I just don't understand. Sometimes I don't understand why Brian Kelly does the things he does <laughs> and how he discusses things, and that was one thing that just doesn't make sense to me. But uh, it's not, not necessarily a big deal, and it only would matter in, in the case that he was not available. Um, and in terms of who I would want – um, Notre Dame to hire as defensive coordinator. I, I'm bad at this. I don't have lists prepared of guys that I think would be good fits because I think it's come almost impossible. I, I, I don't know how am I, I don't know. Like you've actually interacted with Marcus Freeman. So, you know, uh, know about him, but I don't know enough about how defensive coordinators operate. Like obviously there's statistical um, uh, analysis you can do of why this guy has done well and, there's different things on resumes that might be intriguing, but when it comes to coaching, I'm sort of a wait and see kind of guy. I, I want to see how the guy operates and get a sort of 
make my own judgments off of that. Now that's not necessarily um, popular in the sports take world, um, but I, I, I just coaching seems like such an unpredictable um, field and you have to know so much more about a guy than just his past or failures or successes to get a sense of what he's actually like as a coach. Um, so I like, for instance, Harry Heastan, did anyone think Harry Heastan was going to be as good as an offensive line coach at Notre Dame as he was? I don't think so. Right. I mean, Aaron Taylor, but, but beyond him. Right. And, but Aaron Taylor, Aaron Taylor probably knew Harry Heastan pretty well. He probably had a lot of insight to that. Whereas a lot of, a lot of us journalists, we don't necessarily know what's what, what Harry uh, he was like. when he was at Tennessee. I remember talking to the Tennessee reporter and I go, you know, what, what do you think about, you know, what does the fan base think about him leaving? And they're like, bye. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I just, so I, I, I don't, I, I know it's a kind of a cop out, but I don't have a list of guys right now. If, if we, if it comes to a situation where Notre Dame does move on and um, they're looking at other guys, then I can sort of start weighing in on that. But I feel like my time is sort of better spent sort of analyzing what's going on at Notre Dame. I certainly watch other football games, but I, I try not to make too big of uh, judgments off of other coaches without having more information than what is readily available. And then uh, the last question we have is from Jack Quinn at JQ 6008. What are your favorite versions of the green Jersey? The recent neon ones you can see from space, the dark green of the Weiss era, the original ones from the seventies or the ones Lou broke out in the Fiesta Bowl. And I'm sure you have very strong opinions on this, Eric. I have about as strong opinions about jerseys. Uh, as I do cauliflower. So <laughs> I'll say, I'll just go with the seven original green Jersey since that's when it was an original thought. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Jack uh, submits questions to our podcast pretty frequently, but it, he has, he doesn't have a great grasp on things that we have good expertise in. We're like a Jersey question. Actually, I I'm interested in the jerseys. I know Eric isn't, um, but I think there was a podcast this this summer that he asked Carter and I about RNS Battle, and we didn't have a lot of insight into RNS Battle, um, so we weren't necessarily the best equipped to answer that question. But I I do have an opinion in this this instance on the green jerseys. I think the best jerseys are the '70s jerseys, um, but they didn't match and they wouldn't match the helmet that Notre Dame wears with the with the gold color that they use, which is more of a yellow. Um, so those jerseys on their own, I think, are the coolest looking. But I think in terms of the full package, I, I sort of like the ones that Brady Quor, Quinn wore um, that were darker green and had the gold numbers that matched the helmet. So I think those are my favorite uh, uh, if you're talking about the whole uniform. But I think in terms of if you were like buying a jersey that you wanted to wear, um, I think the, the 70s ones are probably cooler. And that is your weekly jersey recap. We'll have a weekly uh, recap where, where Eric will talk about jerseys <laughs> moving forward. Uh, all right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. Tom Noy and Carter Carls will be back on Sunday with a recap of Saturday's Notre Dame-Florida State game. Stick with ndinsider.com throughout the week for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs.